Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this beautiful sunshine. It does something to you. It fills your heart with, with joy. Lord, your word does that even in a greater way. We can be going through the darkest, hardest, most confusing time of our lives, and your word is always there. Your word is what fills us with comfort and peace and joy. It, it leads us out of the valley to the top of the mountain. It's not just a book. It is power. It is a life. It is the living breath of God. So Lord, I pray that you be with us this morning. And for those who will be watching this online later, uh, that you would open our spiritual eyes to see what you have for us this morning. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In a couple of different scientific studies done over the past 20 years, researchers sought to understand how much of an impact a mother's voice has on her children, both in the womb and how children then develop. The results were very interesting, but unsurprising if they're processed through a biblical worldview. In one study, a group of women in their final stage of pregnancy had recordings played of themselves reading a poem and another woman reading the same poem. What they found was that the unborn baby's heartbeats, heart rates sped up when they heard their mother's voice and slowed down when they heard another woman's voice. What they concluded from this was the baby's heart rate slowed down with a stranger's voice because they were trying hard to concentrate and figure out whose voice that was, who was speaking. But it sped up because they, were, they instantly recognized and got excited about hearing their mother's voice. From a pro-life perspective, this also proves that unborn babies can not only notice when there's a voice, but recognize their mother's voice well before they're even born. Once kids are born, there was another study done to determining how much of an impact a mother's voice has upon kids' development. That study showed that multiple areas of a child's brain lit up when they heard a recording of their mother's voice as opposed to another woman's. More than auditory areas of the brain, other areas such as emotion and reward processing, social functions, Detection of what's personally relevant and face recognition also lit up. The most interesting finding I learned from this study was that the stronger the connection was between a child and his or her mother's voice, the stronger that child's ability for social communication with other people ended up being. A mother's voice has a profound impact on her child, even before that child is even born. There's a powerful connection that is, is, is built on that voice that ends up directly affecting that child's entire social development as well. Did you know that there's another person's voice? That God's children have an extremely personal, intimate, and powerful recognition of and connection to? We'll see what that relationship means to our everyday lives as we take a look at the last parable, like I said, in our series on Jesus' parables. It's fitting that this last parable is found only in the Gospel of John, as that book will be the next series we'll be getting into. So if you brought your Bible with you today, this is a, a wrong title slide. And we're in uh, John chapter 10, and we're going to be picking up in verse 1. 
If you, brought, if you didn't bring your Bible with you today, that's fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, this is the fourth book in the New Testament. Uh, or you can look it up in the table of contents. There's no shame in that. Uh, before we get into the parable itself, I first want to talk about who, once again, Jesus is mainly directing this story to. In order to do that, we have to go a little ways back to set up what precipitates this parable. It actually goes all the way back to the beginning of the previous chapter, the beginning of chapter 9. After Jesus escapes from the temple because he claimed his deity with God the Father, and a bunch of guys wanted to kill him for it, he passes by a man who was blind from birth. When his disciples asked Jesus whose sinful fault it was that this guy was blind, Jesus says that it was nobody's fault. It was nobody's fault. He had been born blind for the very purpose that Jesus could heal him and God could receive the glory for it. Jesus then knelt down, took some dirt, spit in it, and made some mud, which he then spread over the man's eyes. Jesus told him to go wash it off in a certain pool, which he did, and he could instantly see. Obviously, this caught the attention of everyone around, and when the man could not answer their demand for who healed him, they brought him to the religious authorities, the Pharisees. The Pharisees then start grilling him and his parents as the authenticity of the miracle and who had healed him. The most important point of this back and forth is this. The Pharisees make the statement that God does not listen to sinners. He just simply, it's cut off. He doesn't listen to what sinners bring to him. Only people who are God-fearing and do his will, God hears, they, they say. The emphasis is on God hearing the voices of those who the Pharisees determined were worthy enough to, for God to hear. That's what I want you to, to remember out of that back and forth. The Pharisees then kick this guy out of the temple and cut off all his access to it. When Jesus finds this man later, he gives him the opportunity to put his faith in Jesus as God, which he then does. Jesus tells him, as well as the Pharisees who happen to be hanging around again, then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. To that, the Pharisees sputter out, we're not like that, right? And Jesus responds that the fact that they even have the right to ask that question in the first place means they actually are spiritually blind. All right, so everyone with me so far? We've set up the background for all of this. Okay, all right. The reason I went through all of this is because it's immediately after that statement that Jesus then launches into this parable. In fact, this parable is an extension of Jesus' response to everything that has just happened. So the two most important points I want you to remember from all that we just went over are these. Number one, the Pharisees making the statement that God does not listen to sinners and only hears the voices of those who the Pharisees thought worthy enough to speak to him. 
And number two, the Pharisees thinking they weren't spiritually blind, but Jesus point blank divulging to them that they were. So then this parable is given to, 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 to these Pharisees as an expansion on what Jesus has just said. The main point of the following parable is to tear apart the Pharisees' ingrained view of God and show what his relationship to people really is. So knowing all of this, let's pick up in John chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Pharisees, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. According to one biblical scholar, John 10.22 sets the background for this imagery. In verse 22, it's written that all of this is leading up to the Feast of Dedication, or the Jewish observance of Hanukkah, which John then writes happens in the winter, just as it continues to take place in winter today. So in the winter time, flocks of sheep were kept in pens at night, surrounded by stone walls and one door. On top of these stone walls, the shepherds would pile up briars as sort of first century Jewish barbed wire to deter would-be thieves. Only the actual shepherd who cared about the well-being of the sheep would go in and out of the door of the sheep pen. If anyone else had any other motivation and goal, they could only get in by climbing over the stone walls and dealing with those briar-covered branches. The only ones who would dare having to deal with those briars would be thieves and robbers. You wouldn't just stumble into a, a, a bunch of briars if you were just an innocent guy just walking along. You had to have the goal of stealing some of the sheep in order to, to even want to deal with any of those. Thieves stole livestock and robbers attacked fellow humans on their travels through remote areas to steal their belongings. And Jesus mentions both thieves and robbers. When the Pharisees, who had just thrown out the man who previously was blind from temple access, simply didn't understand that Jesus was referring to them as those thieves and robbers, Jesus had to expand on that further on. When he says this, uh, verse 10, the beginning part of verse 10, the thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. Now, who else do we know has this same sole goal? Satan, right? 1 Peter 5.8 tells us, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He comes only to steal and kill and destroy as well. Even for the Pharisees, they understood this same truth about Satan. For the entire story of Job is based on what? Satan destroying Job's life in an attempt to get him to curse out God. I'm not sure if the Pharisees still didn't understand this connection Jesus makes. That he's basically saying that they have the same goal as Satan. But we can clearly see that Jesus is making the veiled statement that the Pharisees are acting in the same spirit as the devil himself. Both of their goals is exactly the same, ultimately the same, to steal, kill, and destroy. I wouldn't want Jesus to say those words to me now, would you? 
Those are some very powerful words and connections for Jesus to make. Furthermore, the Pharisees are acting like hired hands. People who were just hired to look after the sheep, who cared nothing for the sheep they were supposed to protect and provide for. As soon as the slightest hint of trouble comes their way, they bolt from their responsibility to lead and to shepherd. Verses 12 through 13. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he's not concerned about the sheep. He's only caring about himself. Now Jesus' Jesus's references to the Pharisees being thieves, robbers, and uncaring hired hands was meant to expand on their blindness to the truth. Again, as we've seen, the Pharisees' worldview and belief that they and others like them were the only ones God loved because of their self-righteous adherence to the Jewish law was not only pathetically wrong and from the pit of hell, but the fact that they were wielding that lie to then kick innocent people out of access to worshiping God in the temple was only destructive. It was only stealing, killing, and destroying. In fact, by the Pharisees imposing this blatant lie of being able to earn your way into salvation from sin by following every rule in the law, on to everyone else and cutting off everyone who disagreed with them from access to the temple, they were following in the very footsteps of Satan, the original destroyer. The Pharisees' blindness prevented them from seeing this, but they actually had the same end result. Deception and destruction of souls. Connect that to today, extending that a little. Any message or perpetrator of a message that claims that you can get into heaven or earn salvation or incur any favor with God or tap into some kind of a higher power completely separate from putting your trust in Jesus, dying and rising again on your behalf to rescue you from your sinful state is not only perpetuating a lie straight from the pit of hell but its end goal is exactly the same as satan's deception and destruction of your soul only by going through jesus that is by recognizing that he paid your debt of death for your sin and rose again to give you eternal life is our only hope of salvation reconciliation with God, and therefore entrance into heaven. Any kind of belief that you're simply good enough to get into heaven on your own is a complete lie meant only to deceive you, meant only to steal the truth from you, and meant only ultimately to destroy you. That's what brings us to that only hope. The good shepherd and the only one whose voice we recognize and connect with. I wanted to first discuss the ones who, and the message that only sought to steal, kill, and destroy first. And I want to focus the rest of our time on the Good Shepherd, our eternal hope. So let's go back to verse 2. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. 
To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, there were other shepherds who came before the Messiah, who also shepherded the nation of Israel, whose voice Israel listened to. But in every single one of these instances, Moses, David, the prophets, they were all meant to point, they, they were all meant to point to each of their ultimate fulfillment. And that's who? The Messiah, right? Deuteronomy says that the Messiah would be the greatest prophet and leader Israel would have following Moses. Second Samuel says that the Messiah would be the greatest king and leader Israel would have following David. And the prophets confirmed all of this and revealed more of this messianic king's mission, purpose, and kingdom. Just as the Pharisees are referred to by two different positions, thieves and uncaring hired hands, the Messiah refers to himself as two different positions, the good shepherd and the gate of the sheep pen. Jesus refers to himself as the sheep pen door in verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. It's the exact same exclusivity as when Jesus refers to himself as the only way to the Father in John 14, 6. It's again another reference to there only being one way to heaven. There are not multiple roads. There are not multiple gates. The belief that all people of faith, whatever that faith is, are praying to the same God, whether you call it Allah, Krishna, Buddha, some unnamed cosmic force or higher power, or a tree, is biblically and blatantly, overwhelmingly wrong. Jesus was very clear about it in John 14, 6, and he's very clear about it here, John 10, 9. There is only one gate by which one can enter the safety and protection of God and have the full, unwavering assurance of eternal life in heaven, and only one gate by which one can go out into the blessing and spiritual abundance of having a growing relationship with God. That one gate is Jesus. There's no other way around it. In fact, the only seeming way around it is the deception of the destroyer of souls, the way of the thief. How does one enter the gate of heaven? By putting our full trust for our eternal fate in this truth. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. Just as my father knows me and I know the father, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. The father loves me because I sacrifice my life so that I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to, and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father commanded. That's what we put our faith and trust in. In other words, when we come to the place in our life 
when we realize that we can never be good enough to get into heaven on our own, through our own good works or our own inherent goodness, because our sin separates us from God, and we recognize that Jesus paid the debt our sin has justly incurred, death on our behalf, and rose again to prove his deity with the Father and to provide forgiveness of our sin. And we use that as the basis for repenting of our sin and asking God for for forgiveness. We then become one of the good shepherd's sheep. We get to experience the protection, provision, and blessing of being one of his sheep. And we get the gift of 100% knowing we'll be with him in heaven forever. There's one more gift we receive as becoming one of of Jesus' sheep. For that, we go back to verses 3 through 5. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. We can have the powerful connection of hearing God's voice and responding to it, just like babies and kids who have that powerful connection with their mother's voice. See, it's not about if, if God will listen to our voice, as the Pharisees believed and perpetrated, because he always listens to our voice. What, what it's really about is whether or not we're listening to God's voice. That's what it's really about. Jesus took all that the Pharisees were, were perpetrating and saying, God only listens to people we deem worthy as people who he, who he can listen to. He takes that and turns that on its head and says, it doesn't matter who you are. God will always listen to you. The question is, are you listening to him? Are you listening to his voice? The author of Hebrews writes that in the past, God spoke audibly and through the prophets. But in these latter days, he speaks to us through the Son of God. And what does the same author who recorded this parable for us this morning also reveal to us about the Son of God? That he's also the Word of God, right? In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The entire Word of God, the entire Bible, is God's voice to us. But one can still read the Bible and never respond to the voice of God through it. That's entirely possible. That happens all the time throughout the thousands of years of human history. So we've been given another gift that is also speaking with God's voice, who opens our spiritual eyes to understand the written word of God. That gift is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus connects the Holy Spirit or the Advocate to himself as the voice that will bring to our minds the truth of God, not only for our salvation, but for our everyday lives. He tells his disciples, but when the Father sends the Advocate or the Holy Spirit as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. 
When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. And of course, God revealed what would happen in the future through the Holy Spirit's revelation to the same Apostle John, known to us simply as the New Testament book of Revelation. So for us today, the movement and leading of the Holy Spirit is the voice of God leading us, guiding us, giving us the wisdom to make difficult decisions, convicting us of our sin in in our lives, and growing in us the fruits of the Spirit, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. But the million-dollar question is, Are we listening to him? Are we listening to him? God has given us his voice to listen to and to be led down good paths, green pastures, and still waters by Psalm 23. There are a zillion other voices out there in the world, all vying for our attention. For us to listen to, be influenced, and be led by politicians, social media, social media influencers, authors, multi-billionaires, news media outlets, cultural experts, talk show hosts, TV show writers, and powers of darkness in the unseen world. Who are we listening to? Who are we listening to? Who are we being influenced by? And who are we living our lives according to? There is only one voice worth listening to. And it's not popular. It's not politically correct. And it doesn't have thousands of likes and shares. But it's very simple. And it's the only voice that will offer us true peace, true change, and true hope. It's the voice of God found in his written word and the movement of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. That's the only voice worth listening to. By the way, God's voice will never contradict itself. In other words, If you feel the Holy Spirit moving in you to make a certain decision or to live a certain lifestyle, it must line up perfectly with what God has already revealed and instructed in his written word. You cannot just say, well, I feel God leading me to do this. And that's just a blanket statement that excuses what lifestyle you're living. It has to line up also with the written word of God. If you sense what could be the Holy Spirit's leading in you about something, you, fir- you have to first search his word to see if it confirms what is pleasing to God and what he wants for our lives. If God's word doesn't, or, you're, or, or what you're sensing or thinking goes completely contrary to God's clear instruction in his word, then guess what? It's not the voice of God. That's not the Holy Spirit. It's a voice But it's not the voice of God. That's another voice trying to deceive you, perhaps even the voice of the enemy, the only one who wants to steal your joy and destroy your life. 
God's word is always, always, always the standard we must hold everything up to. If you're not reading God's word on a daily basis, if we're not regularly listening to teaching on it, if we don't really know what's in it, then what's going to happen? It's very easy for us to be led away by other and different voices. And if we're not seeking to be as in tune with the Holy Spirit in light of God's word as much as possible, then it's also very easy to be led away by other and different voices. Remember, God's word tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light oftentimes and knows the Bible very well and knows exactly how to twist it to achieve his own purposes. That's why it's so crucially and overwhelmingly important, as Jesus says in verse 4, to know the voice of God. When we do that, when we seek to know God's voice through his word and seeking the Holy Spirit's revelation of what it means, we cultivate a tremendous gift. We can navigate through all these other messages and voices by holding firm to what we know the truth of God found in his word really is. We don't get tossed, and fro, to, tossed to and fro by other messages, other beliefs, other philosophies. We have a sure and unbreakable foundation, being able to think clearly with a sound mind through everything the world and its experts throw at us. We are given the voice of peace. When we go through debilitating loss, heartache, and times of darkness, anxiety, and depression, we have the still, small voice of peace. When we go through times of financial instability, we have the voice of truth, reminding us of God's perfect provision and his perfect timing. When we go through times of fear about what's going on in the world around us, or fear about the future, or our kids' future, we have the voice of peace calming us with the truth that God is still king, God still loves us, and God still has his perfect plan for us. The world, you can look at the world, and it's going to look like complete chaos to you. Because it is. And guess what? That's fine. Because we have the sure foundation of the peace of God. We will walk through every step of the way the rest of this life, not being shaken, not being tossed to and fro by fear and anxiety of the chaos going out in the world because we have the still small voice of peace. When we go through times of rejection or emotional pain, we are given the love of God through the Holy Spirit. When we go through times of being completely drained of everything we are, and go through deep depression, we are given the joy of God through the Holy Spirit. When we go through times of upheaval, both national and personal, and crippling fear, we are given the peace of God through the Holy Spirit. When we go through times of frustration and anxiety, and just wanting to force something to happen, we want it to happen, we are given the patience of God through the Holy Spirit. When we go through times of moral confusion and not knowing what to do, 
in any given situation, we are given the goodness and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. When we just can't deal with someone else anymore, and we have nothing left, we are given the kindness of God through the Holy Spirit. And when we're deep in the forces of addiction and temptation to sin and to do something we know wouldn't please God, even when we know it would destroy our lives, we are given the self-control, or really spirit control, of the Holy Spirit. In short, we are given the voice of God. How much are we listening to it in our everyday lives? It's there. It's always calling out to us. How much are we listening to it? How much are we seeking God on a daily basis in order to cultivate and grow our sensitivity to recognizing it and responding to it? Or are we content to just let it be lost in the roar of deceptive voices we're saturated by in this world? Revel in the joy and peace of listening not only to and responding only to the voice of Jesus through his sent Holy Spirit and the revelation of God's holy word. Grow that gift by using it and spending time with the one whose voice it is. And that voice will only get louder and louder and drown out all the other voices. Hold everything you hear in this world up to the standard, truth, wisdom, and authority of the Word of God. When we do that, we'll experience the life we were always meant to live. One filled with peace, provision, and hope that the voice of God calls out with. Answer Him and follow His voice today and for the rest of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this very profound and very powerful parable. This parable that's only found in the Gospel of John, but speaks volumes of who you are and the voice that you cry out to us with. I pray that we would listen to it, your written word and the movement of your Holy Spirit within us, so that we may be held in your perfect peace. We may take every step of the rest of our lives in your wisdom and we may live the rest of our lives in your light in the midst of this dark world. Lord, I pray that if there's any area of our lives we haven't yet surrendered up to the Holy Spirit's transformation, I pray that we would do that right now. We would start getting things right with you so that we can, we can be able to hear you in every area of our lives and follow you in every area of our lives. Lord, I pray that if we've spent too much time listening to the other voices of the world, I pray that you would drown them out with your still, small voice, and we would only listen to your voice from this point forward. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.